I consider myself a sandwich expert. <laughs> and I would say that this is the best sandwich I ever ate. Sandwich Hall of Fame is just all about the sandwiches that you just can't put down. And that's how I feel about the Friday special at the Milburn Deli in Milburn, New Jersey. It's like the angel of sandwiches. The voice you just heard is that of the winner of the Rachel Ray Cookbook Competition, author of that said book, Orange, Lavender, and Figs, and a regular contributor to the Food Network, Fanny Slater, who this summer is appearing on the Food Network Kitchen app live streaming some yummy recipes from her book. If you miss them live, you can find them on demand on that app. So this is the second nepotism episode of Financially Speaking. As Fanny is my niece, and I am one proud uncle of all her achievements so far, and I know you will enjoy her background story, her rise to fame, thanks to Rachel Ray, and how a text from nepotism episode number one, her grandmother at age 90, also known as my mom, and a previous guest, as I said on this show, pushed her to begin living the food dream. So enjoy the episode. Lots to learn about the food business. Some great tips for the kitchen. Talking about food movies, music to listen to while cooking food. To learn more, you can go to FannySlater.com. And thanks to Booker T for a little green onions to saute our way into a great episode. Enjoy. So, Fanny, as a certified foodie, what is your earliest food memory? My earliest food memory always goes back to scrambled eggs for me. And, you know, sometimes you don't know if you remember an actual memory or if you've just seen photographs and videos of it. But there's this home video of me standing on a chair that my dad pulled up to the stove and I'm making scrambled eggs. And he's kind of whispering, he's like giving me tips on what I'm doing. He's like, okay, what are we doing next? And I kind of look at him like, I don't know. And he says, okay, we're going to sprinkle in the sage. sage. We're going to put in the sage and we're going to do it for, and I'm like, I don't know, it color and flavor. And so he's just kind of feeding me all of these different tips. But that was, it's, you know, scrambled eggs is such a simple food dish that I think holds a lot of special meaning for professional cooks because the eggs are so eggs are so versatile. It's one of the first things you learn in culinary school. And so to just have this memory of making scrambled eggs with sharp cheddar and sage, which is the way that my dad still makes them for me today, is sort of the uh, like the first taste of cooking that I got. Well, we'll get back to that later because eggs have had a big part in your run with Rachel Ray and in they your have. cookbook. So we will we'll, we'll certainly circle circle back to the eggs. But food and cooking seem to run in your family, clearly, as you mentioned with your dad. So where did the spark to cook and develop recipes come from? You know, it wasn't something that I feel was innately always with me. I always, always loved food. Obviously, we come from a big food family where when you're eating one meal, you're talking about the next. But the joy of 
developing recipes and cooking didn't actually hit me until my mid 20s when I had moved out to California. And my my whole life, all I ever wanted was to be an actress. And my dad used to say, you know, what is your what's your backup plan, your, your plan B? And I would say, I don't need one. That's what I'm going to do. And I was just so set on being on a screen in some way, which still eventually happened. But I was just convinced that the only way I could do that was through acting. So I moved out to California at 25. And it was the first time I'd ever lived away from home. It was the first time I had ever really been on my own, lived without a roommate. And I started just making dishes that would fill this tiny apartment with these smells that kind of just transported me back home. And in doing that, I actually just found that I, I loved combining different flavors. And really, I mean, in California, you know, it's like, it's never rainy. So you always like, you can't just have a day where you sit on the couch and do nothing. Like on a weekend, you have to get out of the house and go do something. And for me, it was going to the Grove, going and exploring the different Whole Foods. And so I just found myself kind of like taking in all of the like colors and flavors and everything that was, you know, Los Angeles and bringing them back and experimenting with them in my kitchen. And um, I just loved what it did for me. And I realized the idea of doing that for others was just something that I I wanted to do. And I just wanted to do it in a way that I wasn't sure of yet. I just knew that I loved the idea of making interesting flavor combinations and just sharing it with people. Well, Fanny, clearly genetics have played a big role in our family. As my niece, you and I actually shared a very similar thing because I also ran out to California early in my 20s because I wanted to be on stage. I wanted to act. I wanted to be on the air. I wanted to be doing something along those lines. The only difference was I wasn't running to Whole Foods and healthy stores. I was going to a place called the Apple Pan and having my favorite burger and pie and then wound up being in a totally different career. So it's really interesting how that happens. And that's that's a trend that we've heard a lot on this show from rock stars, from TV actors, from sports figures, and from CEOs, you know, winding up in things that not necessarily were on their bucket list when they were in their early 20s. So you've obviously watched all these amazing professional chefs, so many TV cooks. So what personalities have really inspired you on your journey? Uh, Well, obviously, you know, there's a big story with Rachel Ray, which we'll get into. She was not only an inspiration for me always before I ever had a personal connection with her. She's a mentor to me now. But I mean, I mean, really, it kind of started with Rachel because 30 Minute Meals was one of the first shows I think that kind of, I mean, on Food Network, it was one of the first shows that instead of showcasing a chef with very, very, you know, specific culinary talent, it was a home cook who was kind of rough around the edges and she had great tips. She had things that would burn in the oven. It was just very, I don't know, there's something very um, homely and very humble about Rachel. And before I moved to California, I remember starting to watch her show and a dozen of the tips that I use today that I share when I'm on camera that I use in my own kitchen. I mean, they came from her, like these just genius, simple tips. And so Food Network for me started with Rachel Ray. And then I kind of just expanded my culinary repertoire of the people I would watch based on, I mean, I had, I had Food Network down to a science when I lived in California. You know, if the TV was on in the background, like that's how I would know what time of day it was. If the TV was on in the background and I heard brunch at Bobby's, I was like, okay, it's one o'clock. I have somewhere to be at two. So I just, I started to get to know all of these different personalities in a way that 
they felt like they were my friends and they were just in my homes at, you know, in my home at all times. And for me, Bobby Flay was, you know, grilling and brunch. And the most important thing that Bobby taught me was the idea of seasoning every layer, which again, something I use every single day. Jada de Laurentiis and, you know, starting with everyday Italian, same thing, kind of taking flavors that were simple and just sort of using them in a, in a unique way that most home cooks don't often think about. So I feel like I just took a little bit of something from all of those food personalities and, you know, it all kind of made up this culinary like characteristics that I have. It all came from watching Food Network. So to eventually be on Food Network, it's like, yeah, it's full circle. It makes sense. <laughs> so let's get into the Rachel Ray story because I understand that you have a really cool story about winning the cookbook competition and it actually started with a text. It did start with a text. So I get a text one November, geez, seven years ago at this point from my grandmother who I believe was, a geez, must have been almost 90 years old at this point. And I get a text that says... I'm watching the Rachel Ray show and she's holding a cookbook competition and I think you should enter. And I remember seeing this text from my grandmother and thinking, okay, first of all, who enters a national cookbook competition? Like that's, that's crazy. But just to humor her, you know, I wrote back and I said, yeah, you know, I'll look into it. And she wrote me back and said, you never know. And those three words have traveled with me throughout the rest of time because you never know is exactly right. <laughs> And so when I looked into the competition, the rules of it almost felt like they were made for me. Uh, you, you couldn't have gone to culinary school, which was a decision that I, I chose very purposefully. I felt like I wanted to learn cooking through doing, not through technique. I've always been kind of an outside-of-the-box person, and the idea of a very structured school just didn't appeal to me. I wanted to see it. I wanted to learn it. I wanted to experience it. And so... That was that was sort of the road for me. And that was one of the requirements is that you could not be a professional chef or professionally you know, trained by a culinary institute. So check that box. The next was that you needed a cookbook concept. And at this time, I had just moved back from California to North Carolina. And I was starting to blog and write recipes and everything I was writing about somehow kind of like swept me back to my childhood. And so I, I had this concept in my mind that wasn't even really a, a fully formed concept. I just, I found that every time that I wrote about a recipe, I would reference some ingredient, some memory from my childhood. And so this idea of foods and smells and textures and tastes that taste like childhood was just sort of there. And so I realized, damn, all right, I had a cookbook concept. And one thing after the other just sort of fell in place and, you know, you needed to um, submit a video and I was like, great, because I love being on camera. And so I just put everything that I had into these submissions and um, I made it to the top 20 and got a call from the producer, made it to the, the top tell us, 10. Tell us about that first call. The first call. Yeah. Well, so at this point, you know, I mean, you send something like, you send something like this out into the universe knowing that probably thousands of people have entered and you kind of just have to be proud that you took the effort and time to do it and then know that nothing's ever going to come of it. So I remember knowing that there was kind of a certain time frame that if I was to ever hear from anybody at the show, it would be around this time. And so right around that time, I get a call one night from a New York number and I picked up the phone and the producer who has just been 
wonderful friend kind of ever since all this started. And she's been the like, person who's kind of like gone, gone with me side by side through the Rachel Ray show. This producer, Rebecca said, hi, Fanny, this is Rebecca from the Rachel Ray show. I'm calling you about the, the cookbook competition. You know, we picked you for the top 20. Do you have a little bit of time to chat? And as soon as I heard all of this, I remember like I immediately started, I like I sat down on the floor in my room. I immediately started sweating, but out of my mouth came like as cool as a cucumber. Yeah, I got time. I've been waiting for your call. (laughs) 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 To which I immediately was like, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. (laughs) But that's you. But that's me. And so, you know, just as cool as can be. Yeah, I've been waiting for your call. And we, you know, just, just talked and it wasn't, it wasn't an interview. It wasn't, it was just a back and forth conversation and we just had a great rapport and got along really well. And I remember she said, um, you know, if you make the next round, um, you'll you'll have made it to the top 10. And if I don't talk to you again, ever, it was, it was nice to meet you basically. And I thought to myself, man, I made it to the top 20. That's it. Doesn't get better than that. So to then make it to the top 10, then the top five, then to go to the show. I mean, it was just. So what did you have to do after the top 20? Was there, did you have to go do something else? um, So the top 20, it was just that, that phone kind of interview. And what's funny is, no, I know this now, obviously didn't know this then, but um, in talking to Rebecca somewhat recently, it turns out that when they watched my submissions video in the producer's room or whatever, Rebecca ran upstairs to like the executive producer and said, I've got somebody you've got to see. And knowing that story now and sort of being on the other side of it, it just, I had such a feeling the whole time about it. And now knowing what was kind of happening on the other side that they had a feeling about me is just, you know, it's just crazy how, how that happens. But so the top 20 was just, it was just that conversation. I found out I made the top 10 and then in order to make it to the top five, the next step was submitting 10 more recipes. And I had already, I think I'd already submitted either five or 10 and, you know, very traditional in Slater kind of overdoing it mode. I also made another video (laughs) and, (laughs) you know, made like a cute little like compilation of what the cookbook might look like. You know, nobody asked for that, but I did it anyway. (laughs) And so it's always better to go above and beyond. That might Um, be a good book for, for our entire family to write the Slater overdoing it method. Oh, the Slater overdoing it method. Because it's, it's, it's a trend that certainly fits, certainly fits you. And it certainly fits your grandmother and my mother and her father Yep. And and your cousin Jamie and I I can think of many of us in this family. Oh yeah, uh, that 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 definitely. Yeah, we just we, don't know when to stop. We don't know when to stop. We only know yeah. how to do this much. Yeah, we don't know if there's the boxes this big. It's like let me yeah. see how much more I can fit in there. So, so glad my my kids didn't. My kids like avoided that gene. You know. Yeah. It's a, it's a gift. It's a wonderful gift, but at times. No, it's, it's not. People tell me to shut up all the time. Yeah, same here. Well, same here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's been my life, family. So exactly. Exactly. All right. So, so, so you're so you're in the top. You get the call. You're in the top ten. What? What I get happened? The call, next? I get a call that I'm in the top ten. And producer called you. Same producer calls, and at this point, I had saved the number in my phone now as Rachel Ratio. Mm-hmm. So I get a call pops up as Rachel Ratio, And she says, you know, congratulations, you've made it to the top 10. You know, we're now choosing the top five. And if you, if you're selected for the top five, you're actually going to be flown to New York. You're going to compete on Rachel's show. And it's funny because people ask, you know, a cookbook competition that could mean a thousand different things. So people say, you know, did you just submit something? Did Rachel help you write a cookbook? What happened? And ultimately all of it led to a basically a cooking competition on Rachel's show with five different rounds that narrowed it down to one person who then 
got a cookbook contract and then had to spend two years writing a cookbook. And so tell me about the call you got from Rachel Ray. Yeah, that was a very interesting day. So when I got that call about making the top 10, um, same producer, Rebecca said, we will let you know if you've made the top five. And again, if you do, you're going to be flown to New York. And like, that's, that's kind of like, that's the big thing. Like that's it. So if you make the top five, we will call you on or around April 1st, April Fool's Day. And okay. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And she was like, that's just the date that we that we have picked. And I didn't know if I would get a call either way. I just knew on April Fool's Day, something was going to happen, which is a really scary thing to wake up to. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I didn't sleep that night, woke up and I was just so, my head was just all over the place and feeling very scattered. And every time my phone would ring, my heart would jump out of my chest. And then of course I was like the orthodontist, orthodontist, the dentist calling to like remind me of an appointment or a friend calling to ask me to lunch. And I was just screaming at everybody that called. No, I don't like, I don't want to buy insurance. I was just so, so (laughs) aggravated that every call that came through my phone that day. And so eventually I was like, all right, I got to chill out. So I went for a walk on the river here in Wellington and had my headphones in and, you know, my phone in my pocket and just walking and listening to music. And all of a sudden the music in the headphone stops as it does when when your phone rings. I hear the ringing and I look at my phone and it says Rachel Ray show. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is the call. And are they about to trick me? Was all of this just a setup? So it is I, April Fool's Day. It's April Fool's Day after all. So what do I know? And I'm thinking, you know, Rebecca is probably going to make a joke about it. So I'm like, I'm going to make the joke first. So I like, I yank the headphones out of my phone. I answer the phone and I say, this better not be the meanest April Fool's joke that anyone's <laughs> ever played. And then through the other end, the gruff voice of Rachel Ray comes and says, I hope not. Hi, Fanny. This is Rachel. <laughs> to which I'm like, crap, I've just yelled at Rachel Ray. Which is a great way to start. A great, a way, great to start. way to start. No, <laughs> note to self. Yeah, don't don't yell at celebrities. <laughs> oh, she she absolutely loved that moment. I'm sure. I, I think so. Well, she mentioned it on the on the show. I mean, she specifically yeah. had video of making that call. If I yeah. yeah, and it was, yeah, and it was just such a such a wild, unexpected moment because even though I, like I said, I had this like feeling the whole time that I was just making my way through this competition. Never in a million years did I expect that Rachel Ray was going to call me on the phone while I'm just walking on the river walk. And it was, you know, it was a short conversation, but she said, it was kind of the same thing that happened with the producer. You know, I am, I mean, I can barely catch my breath. I'm sweating. I like immediately sit down in the first bench that I see. I'm like almost in tears. People walking by are like wondering what's going on. And Rachel says, you know, I'm calling about the cookbook competition. Um, you've made the top five and we want to know if uh, you'll come to New York and make a little time for us to be on the show. And through all of the sweating and the almost passing out, what comes out of my mouth is, uh, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> and again, I'm like, who the hell do I think I am? <laughs> Let me check my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let me just check my schedule and um, I'll get back to you. Bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> all right. So you brought it on. You're in New York. You meet the other people. What was that like first meeting the others? Because, you know, it must have been, I always thought this is an interesting thing when when people are in a competition like this, like the the finals of American Idol or America's Got Talent or whatever, and they're all there and, you know, they're all obviously want to win. I mean, that's why you're there. You're there to win. But on the other hand, you're human beings. And so mm-hmm. what was what was that whole experience like? 
it was very humbling. I think knowing that all of us were in the same position, wanted the same thing, but were in different, very different places in our lives and did very different things. Right. We're um, all and different every, ages, and- different ages, um, different levels of profession when it came to cooking and everybody was there for the same goal, but I kind of, as the competition went on and I got to know everybody better, I sort of realized that pretty much everybody there, their, their ultimate goal was that they always wanted to write a cookbook, which obviously was the whole point of the competition. Whereas for me, I always had this dream of being on screen in some way. And so it wasn't until I was in front of Rachel's like live audience of 160 people for the first time with all these cameras on me that I feel like I'm right at home and I kind of see everyone else around me just nervous. And so I felt like I kind of, I tried to sort of transfer some of that energy to them because it's, you know, you can't, if someone is nervous on camera, there's not much you can do other than try to try to make everyone feel really comfortable. And so I felt like that was the best thing that I could do as part of this group of people is kind of just try to extend my, my energy and my calm to them about just, you know, like, Hey, we're all people here. It's no, you know, I know it's, there's like millions of people watching at home, but like, don't think about that. We're just, we're just here. We're all here with the same goal in mind. And, um, as we all shared our stories, I just realized I just realized that th- this competition was made for me. And whether I won it or not, it got me into that place where I realized what it was that I actually wanted to do. I didn't want to be an actress. I didn't want to play somebody else. I loved that I could just be myself. I wanted to work with food in some way and share recipes, but I didn't want to own a restaurant. I loved writing, but I loved writing about food. So all of those pieces just fell into place for me. And it was it was very humbling to be with other people that I knew were way more, you know, some were way more skilled, way more talented than I was. But at the end of the day, it was sort of like, well, what do they have? You know, what do I have that they don't? And it always just came back to (laughs) something that my dad has always said to me is nobody else is Fanny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to admit something. I'm a little biased. (laughs) Really? (laughs) So I saw that video. I mean, when I saw that video you made and I'm raising my hand and swearing to whatever power anyone wants to believe in, but I told anyone in my life that knew about it, which was about six people at the time, because it was obviously a big secret. You don't have to worry. She's going to win. I know what a TV producer is going to want. And this is it. It's that simple. And I, I was, I was never, I mean, I never doubted it a second. I really did. not and, and I know, yes, you're my niece and all of that, but I, I just, I never doubted it. So when, when you were doing the show, just give us an idea of some of the celebrity chefs that were judging you because that's got to be a big challenge. It's not like you're being judged by Uncle Mitch here. You know, you're you're being judged by some of the greatest chefs in the world. Yeah. And I mean, I thought I was expecting, you know, first and foremost, Bobby Flay to walk out because I, the people that I had been watching on Food Network, I just assumed these are, you know, these are Rachel's buddies. So these are the people she's probably going to have on. And Bobby was never on the show. I actually still haven't gotten a chance to meet him, but I was expecting the caliber of Bobby Flay to walk through the door. And instead, our first judge outcomes Jacques Papin, who is, you know, like Julia Child's sidekick. Exactly. <laughs> and having this connection to Julia Child and that goes to my dad and his cooking experience and Annette, I had all of these connections to Julia Child that went like sort of through my genes. And to see someone who was so close with Julia Child walk out onto the stage, it was like, 
okay, somebody is like up there, like some somebody is like working their magic a little yes, bit. Yes, yeah. And I'd I like think to that, think I'd like to think it was my NNN. <laughs> I, I, I think I think Julia Child was with her at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Orchestrating the whole exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and of all things, you know, the competition um, for that round was, you know, the thing that you think is as simple as could be when it's actually the most complicated chef technique in the world is making a perfect French omelet. And I mean, watching Jacques Pepin make a French omelet in front of me was probably cooler than participating in the entire competition. I mean, it was like watching a wizard, <laughs> like, you know, make something appear out of nothing. Or for me, watching Bruce write a song. Watching Bruce write a song. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I just remember, I mean, it was like, you. we all blinked. We saw him do it. We saw him walk through every step. You know, we all we all got to like witness that firsthand in person. And even it's like to watch something with your eyes and see it happening in front of you and then not be able to comprehend what you just saw. I just never experienced anything like that before, especially something as simple as an omelet. And so, I mean, none of us even came remotely close to replicating what he did, but the experience of watching him make the omelet and just having him there stand next to me, look over my shoulder as I'm, scrambling eggs which again goes back to my very first food memory it's like how's that even happen <laughs> <laughs> so what other chefs popped on the show so we also had the finale was uh, a handful of celebrity chefs and their families cooked our recipes so we had um buddy velastro who's cake boss mm -hmm. um scott conant who is the the king of pasta hater of raw red onions and uh richard blaze from top chef and not a chef but we had uh, Lori Grenier, Grenier, from, Grenier Shark Lori Tank. Grenier from Shark Tank, right. uh, who did my, she, she did my favorite round of our competition where we actually had to pitch our dish, our cookbook concept and ourselves to her, Rachel and the entire live audience in a time three minutes, which to most people, every when we first heard the rules of this, I looked around at all, you know, the other, the other contestants and they looked terrified. And I remember hearing what the actual, you know, rules were for this round. And I was like, I've got this, like nailing it. <laughs> I was just, I felt like I couldn't have been, I couldn't have been more ready for any moment in my life than I was to be timed in three minutes to basically sell myself to, to these people sitting in front of me. And I, I mean, from the moment that, th that that clock started, I remember thinking to myself, the most important thing you got to do here is you got to end it and go out with a bang. Because if you've only got three minutes, one of the things they're going to remember is even if the whole thing is great, if you trail off at the end, if you're cut off, if you're awkward, the end is just, it's really, you got to just go out and sort of like a flash of light. And I remember watching that clock. And as soon as it, you know, counted down five, four, three, two, one, I just said, cheers to childhood and threw my hands up in the air and got this big round of applause. And it was like one of the greatest moments of my life. <laughs> no, it was, it was pretty spectacular. So here you are, you're down to the final two. What was going through your head? I don't know, the 30 seconds before Rachel lifted up that beautiful poster with your face on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that's a memory I think back on often because it, everything was so surreal. I think after, you know, the, the poster was revealed, but those like 30 seconds or so leading up to it, I just remember very, very clearly because I remember kind of having this feeling, almost acceptance of whether I win this or not, 
I am so proud of what I've done. Oh my God, I'm standing here on this stage. Whether I write this cookbook or not, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to pursue and I know what makes me happy. And so in that moment, you know, as soon as the lights are dim, I just remember looking over at my family and then looking forward in the studio and just picking a spot on the wall to just stare at. And in that moment, it was just this acceptance that no matter what happens here, I've already won. That's acting and training 101. It's acting training, yeah. Uh, I, uh, that, that and picturing the audience in their underwear. Yeah, it. which yeah, which right, I did right? too, you yeah, know, yeah, which yeah, obviously, exactly. <laughs> you know, I did the whole time. Right. And so it was just a it was just a moment of and it was it was quick. It happened very quickly, but it was just a, a moment that I felt this just flash of everything is gonna be okay. And I wasn't expecting them to do this like loud confetti pop, which scared the crap out of Rachel and everyone else. And so that sort of just, you know, blew the lid off of everything and Everything after that was just so surreal, other than seeing my grandmother rush to the stage directly at Rachel Ray. Um, knocking over everybody. Knocking in her over way. everybody Everyone. in her path, in her, in her, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. her red, her yeah. red pantsuit, just starting will, straight for Rachel Ray. We will we will link to that clip as well as many others on this episode, folks. <laughs> okay, good. It is uh, yes, it is my mom. And and if you've listened to the show, uh, you know all about her and you heard her episode. But one of the great, great moments, uh, really, it was incredible. Um, I was actually outside with my family waiting and waiting. And I knew how I knew the ending anyway, because I just knew. <laughs> but it was something else. All right. So you win the Rachel Ray Great American Cookbook Competition. How long to do the cookbook? What was that experience? Uh, that was, I mean, that was a good, a good year and a half, almost two years of writing the book. And it was very much a, you know, it was, I mean, it was hard, hard work. But it was such a, I mean, it's such an interesting experience. I've never done anything like that before. And to have to be working alongside of these professional editors and publishers and working with people who, you know, at Simon and Schuster, who have worked with some of the greatest authors of all time. I mean, it was just unbelievable to see the process. But the amount of time that it took was was probably the biggest surprise to me because it was a year and a half of writing all 100 recipes, cooking all 100 recipes, some multiple times, writing the stories that went along with them. And then once, you know, everything is turned in, then it's a dozen or more rounds of editing. I learned more about recipe writing and recipe development during that time of writing the cookbook than probably than I have in the last 10 years or so of even just doing recipe development as a job. And it taught me so much because that last round of competition where they brought in Scott Conant, Richard Blaze, and Buddy Velastro, the challenge really was how clear of a recipe writer are you? And, you know, they took our recipes home and cooked them with our families and they really dissected, you know, okay, I would have put this here. This would have made more sense if you had, you know, had this note here. And so really learning about the clarity of writing a recipe that was just such a big part of it for me. And all the other stuff was, you know, it was really fun to go back to all the memories and eat the food and all of that. But to actually navigate the world of recipe writing, I mean, for people who really rely on it, for me, it's like I, a pinch of this, a little bit of this, like that's how I like to cook. But for people that don't know what they're doing, really, really good, clear recipe writing is what's going to actually get them a successful recipe in the end. And so it's just really, it's important. So the final product, the cookbook, which I'm holding up, we're not on video, but it's Orange, Lavender, and Figs, a deliciously different recipes from a passionate eater, Fanny Slater. And we will link to all of that as well. And published, of course, by Rachel Ray Books. 
It's pretty incredible. So there's so many amazing recipes and I have a few of my own, not that I've ever tried them, but that <laughs> my wife has and my daughter has. What's your favorite in the book and what inspired it? Ooh, it's hard to or not you could give. You could give two. A couple. Okay. I mean, it's hard to not go back to the breakfast sandwich, um, the first prize breakfast sandwich, because that's the, it's the recipe that I entered the competition with in my initial submission video. And it's the recipe that I submitted for that final round um, when the three chefs and their families took home the recipe. It, I mean, you know, the story behind it is, is, you know, this breakfast sandwich that my dad would make for me and my sister growing up on our way to school and he'd wrap it in tinfoil and call it the tinfoil surprise. It kind of is, it just is a really great representation of what the whole cookbook is about. It's taking a food memory from my childhood and then putting my own kind of modern spin on it. So, you know, whereas my dad, everything that we ate was always very kind of fancy and over the top. It was, it was never American. It was white, you know, fancy shark aged white cheddar. But in this kind of elevated version that I like to make now, you know, I make it with a homemade orange lavender and fig jam, which inspired the title of the book. You know, I use Taleggio cheese, which is this like funky Italian cheese, a little bit of arugula for crunch. So it's just kind of every, every sort of layer of that sandwich is its own kind of spectacular element. Mm. I told so, you we get back to eggs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It always comes back to eggs. So yeah. that that breakfast sandwich is really special to me. Obviously, the brownies, my my parents, you know, brownie business from many moons ago, which you were a delivery boy for. I was the chip guy for four <laughs> months. I poured uh, one. I, honestly, in in retrospect, one of the great jobs of of my life. Not a lot of stress and a lot of chocolate. Mm-hmm. I was able to pour these 100-pound bags of chocolate chips into the batter. And if that wasn't great enough, I was able, this was a summer that I did that, I drove one of the really cool Rachel's Brownie trucks down to Maryland where the plant for Haagen-Dazs was and would deliver the brownies because they were making a Haagen-Dazs-flavored Rachel's Brownie at the time. But the highlight for me was I could walk right into, you know, this incredible frozen space with every flavor Haagen-Dazs on the wall. It's like 80 degrees out. I would, of course, choose coffee. And <laughs> I, would, I would wait about five minutes. It would absolutely melt. And I had the greatest coffee milkshake to drink on the way home. That is a fantastic story. <laughs> It was a cool time. It was a really cool time. So so after the cookbook competition, the cookbook comes out, obviously does very well. And suddenly you're hearing from the Food Network and you started doing a lot of appearances like the best thing I ever ate. What was that like? I mean, best thing I ever ate was one of my favorite shows on Food Network. And so I think to be a guest on a show that you love is like a dream come true. And I remember, you know, I remember sitting down with the producer the first time I made an appearance and they said, okay, you know, the show, it's very quirky and we want you to do this and that. And I was like, bro, I got it. (laughs) Like, I've been watching this show for years. I probably know it better than you do. So that was just an incredible experience to be on the show, but to also get to choose the places that I actually love and have eaten at for years to nominate. Um, obviously, Food Network would have the final say, but to nominate all of these places that I'd written about in my cookbook, that I have eaten out with family for my whole life, those were just amazing opportunities to kind of give some love to to some places. And we will also include a link because 
other than the Apple Pan in Los Angeles, which I mentioned, the other favorite foodie place for me and Fanny and just about anybody in New Jersey is the world-famous Milburn Deli. This episode is brought to you by the Friday special at <laughs> Milburn Deli. I should point out to you, they, they really should bring it to me. But you'll get to see a Friday special being made. And it's it's a really cool episode. And Fanny and my mom uh, got to star in it. It's really, really great. So every now and then I forget that the name of the show is called Financially Speaking. So I always have to throw in something financial. So besides cooking on TV, what is your main income source today? Recipe development has really been the main source of income. Recipe development, food and beverage writing, and restaurant reviews I did for a while here in Wilmington, which didn't really make big bucks, but it got me a lot of good free meals, which was always fun. But the the, the job that I'm doing really full-time is um, working for, for this food website. And every week, it's a combination of writing the recipes, gathering the ingredients, cooking the recipes, photographing the recipes, and then writing about them. And so there's different elements to the job, which I love because it kind of gives me the opportunity. Whereas with catering, which I did for a while, catering was all cooking and dropping off. So this is not only do I get to cook the food, but I get to photograph it and you know kind of try my hand at food styling and food photography. And then with the writing, it's it's the same thing. It's, you know, I'm not writing about restaurant that is not my restaurant. I'm writing about food that I've created and the story behind it. And so I just, I love all the different elements because part of my week is in the kitchen. Part of my week is spent at coffee shops doing some writing and it's just kind of a little bit of everything, but the the recipe development work and the food writing um, has really, that's sort of been my main source of income for the last couple of years. So coming up soon, you're going to be doing some work on the Food Network. Why don't you fill us in on that? Also true. So, you know, everything really changed, obviously, with the pandemic. The Food Network app, I think, has gained a lot of popularity because with everyone doing everything virtually now, all of the, you know, all the folks on Food Network, they're cooking in their own kitchens anyway. So Food Network app really took advantage of that and wanted to bring all the the different, you know, chefs and personalities, wanted to take them in their own kitchens and have them creating recipe videos and streaming them and doing live cooking classes so that everyone really gets a chance to participate. So it's not just that you turn on your TV and, you know, watch a cooking show, you actually can tune into a live cooking class with your favorite chef or your favorite host, ask them questions as they're going along and making the recipe. So it's just really interactive and fun. So I'm going to be doing a couple of Food Network Live cooking class videos coming up. Oh, that's exciting. So you'll be doing that from your kitchen? So that'll be from my kitchen, which means that my dog will be not present. <laughs> okay. So it's yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. Um, Anyone wants to take care of Walter? He's a if, lovely collie if, in Wilmington, yeah. North Carolina. A very is, nice collie available. available for about two hours on <laughs> Thursday. Yeah. So it's uh it's you know it's going to be a, an interesting experience because it's the first time I've ever shot anything in my home live. Um, I shot something for Rachel's show uh, a little while back. And, you know, that was full of edits and cursing and slip ups and knocking things over. And, you know, I was able to kind of compile that into a neat little thing. This is live with Food Network in my ear and uh, actually going about preparing a recipe. So it's going to be it's fun. It's You know, it's I think when the when the pressure's on is when the really fun stuff happens. And that's when that's when inter- that's when things get interesting. I found that whenever I'm, even if I'm shooting something fun for Instagram at home by myself, I'll take 20 minutes to say something as simple as 
the green onions taste like onions. I mean, <laughs> whereas, you know, when you're, when you're shooting something live, you just, you never know what's going to happen. You have to just go with the flow. I don't know what questions are going to get thrown at me. If I don't know the answers to them, I'm going to have to have, you know, some really clever backup jokes. <laughs> so it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's really exciting. And all you have to do is download the Food Network app on your phone, on your iOS or Android device. We'll also link to that and you'll be able to watch Fanny live in her kitchen. And that is certainly exciting. Live is, as you said, very, very different than, than edited. But actually, I think some of the best television ever was live. So it doesn't really matter. I Love Lucy was always, you know, yeah, was filmed was in front of a live audience. That's so, right. <laughs> so, so there you go. You know, one of the things that has been a trait with many, many people I've interviewed on this show as we're approaching our 100th episode, and this includes two recent Rock and Roll Hall of Famers that were guests. It includes uh, a CEO of, of a major Fortune 500 organization. Um, it includes some incredible authors, and even some child actors. Life is not a straight line. Life is full of challenges. And you recently faced one and you made a significant change in your life, giving up alcohol completely. So if you don't mind, maybe you can share some information about the change, how it's affected your life. And maybe we'll even talk a little bit about non-alcoholic beer, for example, but, but yeah. talk, a, talk a little bit about that change. Well, it's definitely something I'm super proud of. And I feel, I mean, I'm at such a awesome place in my life where my head is clear, my creativity is really sparked. And a lot of that has to do with cutting out alcohol. And I think there's, um, you know, there, it can be a very touchy subject and it can be very taboo when it comes to talking about things like rehab. But for me, the choice to, to abstain from alcohol really just came from kind of just looking at my life and where I was, the decisions I was making, who I wanted to be, and how I wanted to live every day. And I just found that I was turning to alcohol for kind of just more for more for coping, kind of just using it as a crutch instead of really feeling everything in life. And I think a lot of people, you know, are kind of guilty of doing that, especially during the pandemic in the last year when, you know, when everyone was at home more often. And a lot of people sort of self-admittedly drank too much. And for me, it was, um, you know, not a, not a de dependency problem, but more of a, it was just something that I would turn to as a way to avoid a feeling that was difficult or going through something that was difficult. And I also, you know, just went through a divorce and am incredibly lucky that my ex and I are still on like amazing terms and are still wonderful friends. But, you know, it was still a big life change and things just don't always happen the way that you expect. And I think it's important to feel everything that life throws at you, whether it's good or bad, because it's going to make the experiences that much richer and you're going to learn from them that much more. And so for me, this decision kind of came about when I just realized I didn't, I didn't have as much self-trust as I would like. And a lot of that came from alcohol because I found that with having alcohol in my life, there, there was sort of this split of two different people, the person who makes the choices when they've drank, and then the person who is clear-headed and makes choices. And it was as simple as, well, which person do I like better? Which person makes better choices? Which person is healthier? Which person is living a better lifestyle? And I chose that person. And I would say that the thing that I was so terrified of was I'm a social butterfly. Like I, I like, I'm a loud person. I like 
crowds. I like being in front of a lot of people. I love dive bars. I love going to breweries on Saturdays. All of these things I love and I enjoy. And I was worried that if I if alcohol wasn't there, can I still do these things? And I think that's probably one of the most important parts of sobriety that I've learned is everybody's journey looks completely different. And whereas some, you know, folks who are sober or in recovery don't even go anywhere near a bar or people who are drinking or any form of, you know, even non-alcoholic beer, for me, those things are kind of my bridge between the two worlds. And I found that what do I love about going to a dive bar. It's not drinking. Going to a, a fun dive bar is to see all the like dollar bills that are taped on the ceiling and, you know, talk to the bartender who's been there for 30 years. So I still appreciate and support these small local breweries. I just know that drinking alcohol is something that I'm not going to do, but I'm still able to kind of socially be in that scene and be part of it. I'm just kind of doing it in my own way now. Oh, it's terrific. And the world the world is adapting two versions of sobriety. And that's why you now see all of these really interesting craft beers coming out with their own non-alcoholic beer. And I was very surprised until recently noticing that. And I'm really proud of you, Fanny. I really think people come out of these things and they learn more about themselves. And it's not easy to admit anything and it's not easy to face these things but again i'm going to be the proud uncle that just can't help myself but you, you've come through this on the other side amazing and i think a really a great role model in many ways yep. for how you can deal with sobriety and and how you can work through this and and you've done you've done an amazing job and pat yourself on the back and you Thank know. you. <laughs> have have oh, a non-alcoholic dear. beer to celebrate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I actually yeah. have a couple in my fridge right now. Um, Great. Which yeah, I, had, I, just, I had some last night, just I coincidentally. Think it should be, I think it should be talked about. I think it should be more of an open topic. And that's why for me, I wanted to, as soon as I made the choice to go to treatment, I wanted to share that story immediately because I didn't want anyone to think of you know, the idea of giving up alcohol or going through recovery as something that is unapproachable or scary, or it's like, if someone has the courage to put out there, you know, Hey, I'm going through this hard thing. And here's what it looks like. All the other people that are going through the same thing, but didn't really, you know, have the confidence to speak up, maybe given a boost to actually go out and change their lives. And so yeah. there's yeah. always been some way that I've, I felt like whatever this platform is that I have, whether it's through Rachel or food network or this little bit of an audience that I have, whatever that may be, there's some way that I want to help people. And I thought it was just going to be through food. And now it really just ultimately comes back to eggs. Yeah, <laughs> no. it comes back to eggs. <laughs> yeah. Well, it comes to, it comes back to clarity. Uh, Johnny yeah. Resnick, uh, the Goo Goo Dolls, who just became sober in the last couple of years when, when we spoke recently, you know, he talked about clarity and, you know, I've always also having a young child and just being able to see things clear. And he's been working on a new record actually recently and happens to live on my street. So I do see him and we were talking recently and, and he was saying how different it was writing and recording this music without alcohol. And he is, he just feels like it's, he's just been pouring just his heart out into, into this music and is really, really excited to get it out. And Ricky bird, who was another guest who was in uh uh, and also a rock and roll hall of famer where he was the guitarist in Joan Jett's band and also learned a lot. So 
So let's talk about food for, for a little bit before we wrap up here. So what do you think is the single most important tip that you can give someone who wants to learn how to cook? So for example, we've come out of this pandemic. All of a sudden, people are, are cooking more. I'll use this. I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my daughter and your cousin, Georgia, who cooked many of the meals that I ate during the pandemic, and, and we all enjoyed it. I can't cook, or at least I just don't have an interest in it. I'd rather play the piano. But I have <laughs> I have I have fortunately married someone who can. And Georgia just loved finding these different recipes and learning about it. But what are some tips that you give to people that they really want to learn how to cook? They really just they don't have to become Jacques Pepin or they don't become Fanny Slater, but they want to learn how to cook. I think honestly, the sort of like OG rule of Bobby Flay that I talked about earlier, this idea of seasoning every layer. I think that is crucial to cooking. And it's something that people don't think about. I think people are a little, you know, you you see a, a chef or a professional cook when they season a piece of meat, for example, and the amount of salt and pepper they take and throw on there, it's like they're fearless with it. Whereas at home, a lot of people, you know, say, okay, it's the recipe says only quarter of a teaspoon of salt. That's all I can use. I think there's a lot to be said for making sure that every single layer that you're putting into a dish can stand alone. So for example, Bobby always, you know, when he throws a salad together, he puts salt and pepper into the salad to season the greens, to season the other ingredients in it before he ever throws, you know, a seasoned dressing over it. So I think it's just a really, it's a really smart idea to, to taste as you go, because if, if you don't, you know, if you don't kind of taste ahead of time, and something is a little bland, by the time you get to the end, it's still going to be bland. <laughs> so I think to really kind of just be more confident with seasoning and with, you know, just tasting as you go, it's just a, a thing that you just, you just, it's a skill you pick up by just doing it over and over again. So I would just tell people to not be, not be so afraid when it comes to seasoning and making sure that every, every little part kind of has its own flair. And then as far as recipes, like, and I'm sure Georgia has experienced this, but when it comes to substitutions, um, I think there's so many, there's so many times that people look at a recipe and they say, well, I'm not going to make this because I don't have this on hand. There are so many ways that you can substitute things in a recipe that will not have any effect on the overall outcome. And for that, I would say, unless you're like Georgia and you have a cousin who's on the food network who you can text, you know, I think Google is your best friend because, and I, I turn to Google all the time for things as simple as, you know, what can I, what can I substitute for, you know, mustard seed, something like that. There's just a dozen ways that you can get around things. And I think people take recipes It's funny for a recipe developer to say this, this is my job, but I think people take recipes a little too seriously. So we're putting this out there for you as a, as a guide, as a format, as kind of just a base. And from there, I think you should kind of take it and make it your own. So I think being a little more confident in the kitchen is my advice for everyone. So as we're talking, I'm remembering my conversation a few weeks ago with Susie Amos Cameron, who wrote a book called One Meal a Day. She was the granddaughter in Titanic. She's married to James Cameron, and she's really focused on plant-based eating, has a school that's involved in doing that. And this concept of doing one plant-based meal a day can really help save the environment and, and everything. And I made a commitment to try it. So my, she said, try breakfast. So I now use oat milk. That's my, then <laughs> as, as a friend said, yeah, as your, actually, as your father said, yeah, then he has the ribs at lunch. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but talk to me a little bit about that whole world, about the vegan plant-based 
world. And 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 I'm and I'm going to throw my bias in. And I just it's a struggle for me ever understanding a lot of that. And that's just me. But as I've realized how much it can actually help the environment, now I can relate to it. I, some people I thought, oh, you're vegan. You're just trying to be cool. You're just, that's the 60s hippie thing. And, and you're just doing that just so you can say you're vegan. But now to me, it makes sense. And I'm not saying I'm going vegan, but I'm starting to think about these things because I know how they affect the environment. So talk to me a little bit about that. And, and I bring that up because another guest on the show who you know, Diane Sanfilippo, wrote two books, one about paleo, which was all about you know, kind of meat eating. And then she wrote a book on keto and that whole world and, you know, kind of two different areas. And I don't know, I'd just love to hear you kind of opine on that for a moment. I think that the different, the different, I don't know if I'd call them diets necessarily. I'd say there's, there's different kind of lifestyle changes that people make when it comes to eating. And I think there are people who absolutely do it because it's trendy or maybe I'll lose weight, but I feel that there's really a benefit to a lot of these kind of different ways of eating. And for me, I'm a believer in everything in moderation. And I think eating is a very individual, very personal journey. So I eat the way that I do because of my experiences and because of the way that kind of food makes me happy and ways I've learned what's good for my body and what's not. So for me, a lot of it is about moderation, but I have a friend who runs a a business, a lifestyle redesign business. And she, everything that she does is based around helping women lose weight by going plant-based. And it's just a really, really interesting world. And I think when you, when you know somebody personally who has changed their life through a certain diet, like she did, I mean, the amount of weight she lost, the way that it changed everything about her physically, mentally, emotionally. I mean, it really, it was a, it was a lifestyle change as opposed to just, I'm going to stop eating meat. And I think, I think that concept is just so interesting to me because it's a whole other world of culinary creativity. And I love cheese. I can't help it. And, you know, and having conversations with her, she'd say, you know, I, I love cheese too, but you know, name me a food or a dish that I can't have. And she'll say, go ahead, I'll wait. <laughs> and mm -hmm. anything that you can possibly think of, even something that seems like it has nothing to do with a vegetarian dish, like fish tacos, you can make that in a plant-based right. form. You can make right. burgers plant-based. You can right. make cheese plant-based. Lasagna, mean, all, yeah, you know, anything. Yeah. Lasagna, anything yeah. you can make in a plant-based form. And not only are a lot of them really delicious, but you know, obviously it's just a, it's, it's really good for your body, I think, to, to kind of have a little bit of variation and um, you know, with my, my, my parents haven't eaten red meat in, you know, 20 plus years. And so for me, that was something that was just, we always kind of went with chicken or fish or sort of leaner proteins. But because of that, we also had a lot of vegetables. And so, there, you know, there's a time I flipped through my cookbook and realized the amount of vegetarian recipes I have in here is incredible. And it's, it's totally by accident. It's just because vegetables are so like versatile that, you know, it was really inspiring to hear you say that you decided to start doing, you know, one vegan meal a day because it is such an easy thing for people to do. And I, I really do think if, if everyone kind of just gave the, gave, gave the, like gave time to the experience of swapping out one meal a day for a plant-based meal, I think not only would they see a change in probably the way that they feel, but I think, you know, obviously, you know, like you said, it reduces a big carbon footprint. I mean, it's just, 
it's just incredible. But but like I said, I'm a I'm a believer in moderation. So I'm happy to happy to have, you know, oat milk for breakfast and ribs for lunch too. <laughs> so uh, we'll do a little lightning round. I'm going to add a question here. Ooh, fun. Um, as you know, I hate peas. <laughs> I, I hate peas more than just about anything that ever existed in the history of mankind. If any of you are curious, I was force fed them at Camp Winnedoo when I was seven years old, but that's a separate story. But anyway, <laughs> is there a food that I'm sorry, never going to happen? Uh, anchovies by themselves. Okay. Anchovies in a dressing. Yes. Anchovies by themselves. No, sorry, Rachel. No. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I do not like nuts in things. I will eat nuts, but if you put the nut in anything, you mix it in anything, even chocolate, I'm not going near a goober. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> Your favorite food related movie, Fanny Slater. Julia and Julia, obviously. I love all the scenes with the butter. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a Tim Ferriss question that I have, I used to say I've borrowed. Now I say I've stolen because, you know, I've done a hundred episodes and Tim doesn't seem to care. But if you had a billboard that a magic genie handed to you, the whole world's going to see it. What would it say on that billboard and why? And you can only use a word or a phrase to put on it. Ooh, a one word or a phrase. Okay, well, a phrase, what comes to mind for me is kind of a concept that I live my life by, which is look at what everybody else is doing and do the opposite. And I think if I had to give you like maybe two words instead that would be squished onto the billboard. You can have a few billboards if you want. Okay, yeah, okay. I just, I like the idea of embracing the different. I think looking around at what's normal, what everybody else seems to kind of be going along the path doing and then finding a way to create your own path and do something different, say something different, be something different. That to me is sort of the thing that makes life more joyful. It makes life more interesting. So I'm just a big, uh, I'm a big believer in embracing the difference. Embracing the difference. The book is Orange, Lavender and Figs a cookbook, deliciously different recipes from a passionate eater written by our guest, Fanny Slater. And of course, a forward by Rachel Ray, who kind of helped make this book happen. Where can people get the book, Fanny? It's available online or um, anywhere books are sold. Retail shops like uh, Barnes & Noble. Amazon is a great place to get it quickly. Great, great, great. And coming up soon, you'll be on the Food Network live from your kitchen. So we'll give you more information about that. And think there's another cookbook in your future? I think so. I don't know. Let's ask, let's ask my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she'll I, absolutely she, say so. She'd say, you never know. <laughs> all right. Well, Fanny, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Resonate Recording, thank you so much for all the wonderful editing work. And as we say at the end of every show, when it comes to saving for your financial future, first of all, go out and pick up a copy of Orange, Lavender, and Figs because you have to. And please, it's my niece. Buy a book <laughs> and pay yourself first. <laughs>